So we're now on article 12. So if you do the math, we did 11 times 3, that's 33. We've done two weeks of Article 12 because this is the third week of August. So we've done 35 sessions on basic Bible doctrine. And we're doing the same outline on every topic. Biblical, just what's, a, what's kind of a quick run to what the Bible has to say about this doctrine. Historical, what have our brothers and sisters believed about this truth throughout church history. Uh, surprise, surprise, we're not the first generation of Christians to ever live and think about some of these things. So we're looking to see if we stand in line with the history of Bible believers. And then the third week, which is today, is practical. Kind of the so what. What does that look like in our life? Because doctrine, theology, is meant to lead somewhere. Not here, but really here and feet. But also heart, doxology, worship, praise. So today is Practical Theology in our Core Doctrine series. It is, as I mentioned, the third week, and we're looking at the doctrine of Christ's church and her ordinances. So I'm going to read this affirmation of faith, and then I will lead us in a word of prayer. Uh, No, let me do that the other way. Let's pray, and then I'll read the affirmation. Father, thank you so much for these brothers and sisters. Thank you for you, the whole reason we're brothers and sisters. And we're brothers and sisters in a family. Yours. You've invited us into the happy fellowship that you've enjoyed with yourself from forever. And we pray, Lord, that as your church, we would reflect who you are, especially in our relationships to each other. As you say in Galatians, doing good to all, especially the household of faith. And let that be seen in the way we respond to the beautiful ordinances you've given to your church and all that they represent. So stir our hearts now to live in light of the gospel as your people, the church. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Article 12 says, uh, by the way, special thanks to Jason Jarvis and Jeff Hill. If you haven't listened to weeks one and two, they're available on one of the podcasts that Ben Bailey curates, Grow Teaching, so you can go listen to all previous 35 sessions if you have that kind of ambition. Um, They're available on that podcast. Thank you. I really commend those sessions from the past two weeks to you. They read this article, we believe in the one universal church composed of all those in every time and place who are chosen in Christ and united to him through faith by the Spirit in one body with Christ Himself as the all-supplying, all-sustaining, all-supreme, and all-authoritative head. We believe that the ultimate purpose of the church is to glorify God in the everlasting and ever-increasing gladness of worship. Point two, we believe it is God's will that the universal church find expression in local churches in which believers agree together to hear the Word of God proclaimed, to engage in corporate worship, to practice the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, to build each other's faith through the manifold ministries of love, to hold each other accountable in the obedience of faith through biblical discipline, and to engage in local and world evangelization. The church is a body in which each member should find a suitable ministry for his gifts. That should be lowercase s, lowercase Lower case H, 
It is the household of God in which the Spirit dwells. It is the pillar and bulwark of God's truth in a truth-denying world. And it is a city set on a hill so that men may see the light of its good deeds, especially to the poor, and give glory to the Father in heaven. Finally, we believe that baptism is an ordinance of the Lord by which those who have repented and come to faith express their union with Christ in His death and resurrection by being immersed in water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is a sign of belonging to the new people of God, the true Israel, and an emblem of burial and cleansing signifying death to the old life of unbelief and purification from the pollution of sin. Ah. We believe that the Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the Lord in which gathered believers eat bread, signifying Christ's body given for his people, and drink the cup of the Lord, signifying the new covenant in Christ's blood. We do this in remembrance of the Lord, and thus proclaim his death until he comes. Those who eat and drink in a worthy manner partake of Christ's body and blood, not physically, but spiritually, in that, by faith, they are nourished with the benefits he obtained through his death and thus grow in grace. We believe that each local church should recognize and affirm the divine calling of spiritually qualified men to give leadership to the church through the role of pastor-elder in the ministry of the word and prayer. Women are not to fill the role of pastor-elder in the local church, but are encouraged to use their gifts in appropriate roles that edify the body of Christ and spread the gospel. Okay. So, um, we've talked, as I mentioned, two weeks already about the kind of theology and history of all that was contained in that verbiage. And here are five practical expressions that I want <clears throat> us to consider this morning, and hopefully we'll have some time for some interaction as well. Um, worship. It said at the beginning of the affirmation that we believe that the ultimate purpose of the church is to glorify God in the everlasting and ever-increasing gladness of worship. Let me Jordanify that. If you've been a member of a local church for a protracted season, I'll let you define how long protracted is, you should be more happy in Jesus than you were when you first joined her. You should increase in your gladness in God because of your unitedness to His people. But that should have a corresponding effect on everybody else as well. Their gladness in God should increase because of their unitedness with you. So worship. Uh, we, you know, we say around here little quips and phrases that can become white noise, uh, but we repeat them because they pack a lot of stuff in a little space, and one of those quips is, uh, good news, this church isn't for you. Better news, not for me either. It's for Him. This is His body, and we exist for Him to worship Him. So, when it comes to worship, um, a few considerations that I'd like to draw out. If you'll remember back to the Red Sea experience, Exodus chapter 12, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, we read <clears throat> that the Lord was commanding Israel to be set free from Egypt for a specific purpose. He was saving them from slavery, parting the sea, bringing them into a new place, but there was a reason, and at the end of verse 12 you can see, you shall worship God at this mountain. The whole purpose of salvation is Godward. And so just like we say, good news, this church isn't primarily for you or me, 
primarily for him, so also we could say about our individual salvation. Your salvation is not mainly for you. It's mainly for him. He saves by himself and for himself. So if you've been around Grace Church for some time, you've heard us say things like, best we can tell from the reading of the New Testament, God's doing three main things in the last days. Between the resurrection and the return of Christ, he's doing a billion things, but the three main things, if you read the New Testament, he's bringing glory to his name, he's doing good for all of his people, and he's getting the gospel to the nations. Glory to his name, good for his people, gospel to the world. And if you read the New Testament, there's one primary means God is using to accomplish those three gigantic aims, the local church. So that's nowhere more clear than, in my estimation, uh, the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 3.21, the church is for God's glory. Ephesians 2 and 4, doing good for all God's people is happening in and through the local church. That is, he's edifying us in the faith, chapter 2. He's equipping us for ministry, chapter 4. And chapters 1 and 6 of Ephesians, he's getting the gospel to the world, the eternal gospel that was planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, applied by the Spirit, chapter 1. Paul says to a church, pray for me so that I can keep making the gospel known with boldness as I ought to. It's the church's work to get the gospel to the nations. And it's all about him. Ephesians 3, I just mentioned, to God be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now that's a verse we've worn out a lot. In fact, it is kind of the chorus of the song of Grace Church. For 15 plus years, we have trodden this verse many, many times. It needs to be trodden more. But one thing we say about it, maybe you can see it while it's on the screen, is that it is a literary parallel. To the degree God gets glory in the church is the same degree he gets glory in his son. So you have to answer the second question first to know what degree of glory he's getting in his church. You can say, how much glory is the father deriving from his eternal son? Infinite, maximum. How long? For all time and for all eternity. To all generations, forever. That's time and eternity. So also the father is deriving glory in the bride of Christ. It's all for him. To him be the glory in the church. Uh, If you hadn't listened to Laura Lancaster's episode on Glorified Treasure Spread, again, thank you, Ben. Um, That would be a great episode to go listen to. That's another of GC's podcasts. Uh, And Laura does a great job helping us think about that. Accountability. So Godward, that's vertical, and then horizontal. Manward, brother to brother, sister to sister, church to church. Let me just say something about accountability. It's going to relate to this morning's sermon as well. If your God agrees with you about everything you think, then you need a new one. The local church is designed by God for mutual accountability. When you join a church, you are functionally saying, I need help changing. That's what you're saying on the way in. If you don't need any help, then don't join a church. You join because you realize you're not what you once were, regenerate church membership, you're born again, but you're not what you will one day be. 
So between here and there, you're in a process of transformation. How does God do that? As far as I'm aware, there's one verse in the Bible that tells you explicitly how you behold the glory of Christ. Let me remind you that that sentence was written to the church at Corinth, not to you individually. So also, all the verses in 13 books of the New Testament were not written to an individual Christian, but to collective churches, which I take to mean you cannot have the blessing in any of those books. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, we could keep going. You can't have the blessing in any of those books unless you're embedded into a church like the ones that received those books to begin with. We need each other and we need accountability. So, accountability looks like verse 16 of Ephesians 4, the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So if you're an eye, an arm, a foot, a hand, a mouth, whatever your part of the body of Christ is, with Him as the head, just like your physical body, it presupposes that you, like the parts of your physical body, are growing, you're changing. You need the body, the body needs you. This is God's wonderful design for the good of His people. Similarly in Colossians, hold fast to the head, that's obviously Jesus, from whom... The entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. So I just go back to what I said earlier. Over time, however protracted you want to make that, it's not a day, it's not a week, it's not a month, it's protracted longer than that for sure. But over time, you should be becoming more like Christ as a result, a direct result of your membership in one of his churches, growing with a growth which is from God. And you're not the best judge of how well you're growing, which is also why we need a body. Second Timothy, speaking of accountability, says that all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for the fourfold use of scripture, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. So that fourfold teaching kind of goes like this. Ah, that's teaching, right? By definition, we got some teachers sitting on our front row right here. Um, Their students don't know on day one of the school year what these teachers hope they will know on the final day of the school year. (laughs) Uh, You learn. That's part of why God wrote us a book. We don't know what we need to know. And so we're taught. So it's that, ah. We're also, look at the next three. Reproved, corrected, and trained. It's not just factoids, new information. It's ouch. So it goes, ah, then it goes, oh. Reproved. That's why I say if your God agrees with you about everything you think, you need a new one. The best way, we say a lot, to mess up what you think about God is to read your Bible. So teaching, reproving, then correcting. It goes, ah, ouch. Hmm, that's good. You get corrected. And when you're corrected, you're not corrected in a way that you dislike. You're reshaped into something you realize is how you should have been walking. It's good for you. You appreciate 
God drags a grand total of zero people to heaven kicking and screaming. He fixes your wonder. And then He trains you. As you're, after you're corrected, it's yes. So it starts with, ah, that's interesting. And it ends with, yes, that's good. You're trained. That's how the Word shapes us as a body. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. I would say a few things, and again, the last two sessions were fantastic. If you haven't heard them, I commend them to you. Again, baptism, Acts 8, 12. When they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were, parenthetically, then baptized men and women alike. So the pattern of the New Testament, let me just go back to some notes real quick, is consistent. Baptism is to be administered post-conversion by immersion in the context of a gospel-proclaiming church. That's uh, as simple a summary as I could say it. Post-conversion by immersion in the context of a gospel-proclaiming church. So that's what happened in, in Acts 8, and I would say in every other example of baptism you can find, like Acts 18. Crispus, leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So, I have some misgivings about the invitation system that became popularized over the last 50 to 75 years in the West, um, the Western church, but Prior to that, how were people professing their faith in Christ? It wasn't, and and the mechanics aren't to me the problem. It's the incessant false senses of assurance that a lot of people get as a result of well-intentioned efforts. Um, I think misguided efforts. But baptism was the way that New Testament believers professed their faith. And that's the way that It's happened in church history. Acts 2, so then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So one little project I've been working on, I want to read you some notes from, uh, which are from John Hammett's Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches. He's a Baptist history scholar, prophet, Southeastern. He's taught other places. He says, God has given all Christians the means of professing our faith in Jesus and expressing our commitment to live upon his bounty with his people, baptism. Indeed, all who belong to Christ's universal church are called to belong to one of his local churches. Biblically, baptism is to be administered by a local church as a one-time post-conversion immersion in water accompanied by the candidate's profession of faith that he or she has already been united with Christ. In the New Testament, all who received baptism were post profession of faith, not all true converts, but that's God's business, but they were certainly post-profession of faith adults. This is my notes, not Hammett's, and then I'll quote him. I have heard many repeat the notion that in the New Testament, the first step of obedience to Jesus for a believer was baptism. Maybe you've heard that. I've heard it a lot. I've even repeated it. But is that actually the case? In many cases, yes. But again, all of those again were adults. Hammett writes, there's nothing in Scripture resembling a command to baptize immediately. And while there are instances of immediate baptism, there are other instances where the time factor is not clear. Acts 18, 7 and 8. 
and where conversions are reported without any mention of immediate baptism, Acts 4.4, Acts 13.48. In fact, Hammett writes, conversions are spoken of as, quote, a daily occurrence, but baptisms are not, Acts 2.47, Acts 16.5. What is far more clear in the New Testament than the timing of baptism is for those who are suitable candidates, professing Christians who are able to embrace the privileges and responsibilities of church membership even of an age and stage of life that they can heartily perform in their baptism profession, whether they say it audibly or not, that they themselves must be excommunicated by the Christians in their congregation should they, God forbid, indulge in unrepentant sin or abandon the faith. Hammett concludes, if the purpose for delay is to ascertain as much as possible that those who are baptized are believers, then the delay seems commendable rather than questionable. Finally, at what age can a child, this is Hammett, exercise saving faith and thus meet the requirements for believer's baptism? How soon after coming to faith should a young believer receive baptism? What age does a child need to be to make a profession of faith that a church can accept as credible and thus grant believer's baptism? These are important questions for children, for parents, and for churches. Hammett, Scripture does not specify an age limit for churches to adhere to when administering baptism, but there's good reason why virtually no Baptistic churches until recent history administered baptism upon young people. Have churches in today's West understood Christ's ordinances better than the majority world and the vast majority of church history? Last but not least, historically, Baptists prior to the 20th century were slow to see childhood decision as faith commitments warranting baptism. Does Jesus save young children? This is Jordan, not Hammett. Yes. Often. Should they be immediately baptized? The strongest biblical argument that I'm aware of for such a practice, though very common today, would be one from biblical silence. But the scriptures do speak clearly and consistently about those who were baptized. They were adults who professed faith in Christ. Unless we proof text... Some of Jesus' words about the faith of children, which he does say unequivocally and often, let us also remember that Jesus himself wasn't baptized until he was about 30 years old. So, there's some thoughts on baptism. It's an ordinance of the local church, and it's to be administered upon post-profession of faith people who are ready, Hammett, for the privileges and responsibilities of church membership, including protection of the gospel. Uh, through accountability. Lord's Supper. Um, do I have notes? No. Um, you guys hear this passage almost weekly here at Grace Church. We use a smattering of them. This, no doubt, is the primary one that we use. First Corinthians 11, Paul says that he received from the Lord what he delivered to the church at Corinth, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, The cup is the new cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you, that's plural, eat this bread and drink the cup, you, plural, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every week uh, in, at Grace Church, there's a silent sermon, and we all preach it. We proclaim it. And what are we proclaiming? Jesus died. Jesus rose again. Jesus is returning. 
Together, it's a proclamation of the gospel that unites us to the Lord and to one another. And so it's a backward-looking, it's a forward-looking. So a lot of people have said it uh, the way I'm about to say it. I think this is a good summation. Baptism is the doorway into the church's membership. The Lord's Supper is the continuation of the church's fellowship. So you come through the door before you sit at the table. And that, I think, is also a demonstrably biblical pattern. So you can ask any questions about that here in just a moment. Uh, Baptism, Lord's Supper, accountability, any other thing. But let me just mention one more passage from Corinthians about uh, what I call every member ministry. This is in the affirmation of faith. Everybody should exercise their gifts. You got pastors who have a particular role and call, but we all have gifts that we should use for the upbuilding of the body. Look at this phrase. This is such a carefully worded sentence by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the principal part is in the next slide, I think. First Corinthians 12, but now there are many members. He's talking to the church at Corinth, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it's much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker or necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. Here it comes. But God has so composed the body. He's talking about the church at Corinth, the people who made up the church, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacks so that there may be, time to stop, no division in the body. You see that? So that? No division in the body, but, you could import, so that, the members may have the same care for one another. Why did God put the particular Christians in the local church at Corinth? So there'd be no schism, and so that every single member would have, to quote God, the same care, the same concern for each other. Functioning like a body. The passage goes on, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you, plural, are Christ's body and individually members of it. Okay, there's a quick uh, practical theology on uh, Christ's church and her ordinances. We have um, five and a half minutes for any interactions that you all might like to ask or contributions you would like to add. Anybody have a thought? Question, comment. And I'll just go back to that that may provoke one of those. Nobody? Byron Russell. It runs around my head. I agree with you that God does say That's the question. No, I, I answer that with, uh, you know, questions in my own mind. Um, I'm going to say two things, and this may lead to other questions. 
Some have argued that it creates a works-based perception in the mind of a regenerate child and heart to have his or her baptism delayed, which of necessity would then, if you believe what I just said, is faithful to the word, also delays their partaking of the supper. So they're already regenerate, they're not yet baptized, therefore not partaking of the Lord's Supper. And so then they have to, uh, it might be presumed, prove it, prove it, prove it, right? That's the works-based thing. Um, I would say that church history is our friend here because it wasn't until, I mean, I think 100 years would be generous, um, 75 may be generous, 50-ish years ago, only in one particular place geographically, the West, and places where the West has impacted world evangelization, has there been a pattern of baptizing young children? So I'm saying, to put that another way, nowhere in church history are you going to find that as a pattern. And you're not going to find it today anywhere except the modern West and places we've impacted. So India, which is less than 2% Christian, the median age of baptism is about 25 they want to see a lot of people come to faith. They're not ready to rush them into the baptistry. And so that's more common than our experience. Also, this is to your question, never in church history has there been an epidemic of rebaptisms. The only place that has happened and is happening is where the prevalence of the baptism of young children has been a thing. I think that confuses the world about the gospel. I think that confuses the church about the gospel. So instead of being a deterrent to gospel fidelity, I think church history has something to teach us and pushes against our sense of, I, I personally don't think we've understood the ordinances better than most of our brothers and sisters in church history, but I resonate with your concern. Let me just say this loud and clear. This is from Pastor Jordan for all you kids and parents of them. I think there's a lot of regenerate children in this church. I totally believe that. By the way, I don't know if they're in the room, but I'm going to say this because I don't see them right now. And even if they are in the room, I hope it encourages them. I've sat with his daughters at Chick-fil-A in South Haven and told them both, I have every reason to believe you know and love Jesus. I think that's true of a lot of kids in this church. So I have my own misgivings about your question, Lord's Supper, delay. Um, nobody loved and honored God more than Jesus. He obviously never needed to be regenerated, but he also wasn't baptized till age 30. And think there's something in that pattern, not everything in that pattern, um, that can help us. That's going to lead to a lot of questions. Uh, let's take no more than three minutes for one that's related. How about that? Yes, David. Yep. Children obey your parents. 
Yep. Yep. Well, my thoughts are almost every week, definitely not every, but the vast majority, I try to purposefully address the children. And I do so as, belie- as their believers. I talk to them as if they're Christians a lot of the time, not all the time. And so what I would say to that is what I said in the notes earlier, that any argument to welcome them officially into the church's membership through baptism, I would say is an argument from silence. So we're both trying to navigate from what the Scripture doesn't say. I would say there's a lot of regenerate kids in Ephesus. Paul was their pastor for three and a half years. He knew them super well. When he wrote them that epistle, I'm sure he's thinking of names and faces, including kids, when he's writing sentences like you just alluded to. Um, There's nothing in his ministry, including his visit to Ephesus recorded in Acts, that gives any indication that anyone other than adult professors were baptized. So that's what I can say is clear, black ink, white paper. Did it include children? Well, that's where I'd say we both have to concede. If yes, our argument is from silence. So that's my sense of it. Why withhold it from a professing believer? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, my own views have changed on that, so I've wrestled a lot. I used to say, I led the Lord's Supper meditation at Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis several times. And I said there, if you believe the gospel that I'm telling you right now before the elements make it to you, big uh, balconied auditorium, then partake of this meal with us today. I wouldn't say that today because I think baptism precedes the partaking of the supper, uh, the biblical order. But yeah, I mean, I agree. I'm just saying to you, I got my own misgivings about my own view and uh, my, my concerns lead me to default more to let's stand on the shoulders of our brothers and sisters because they thought about all these same questions too. And, uh, yeah. Good questions. Not compelling to everybody. Uh, May the Lord help us. Father, thank you so much for this church. I pray that you would help us to increase in biblical faithfulness and that you would save a ton of people through our witness, especially our kids. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.